Hi, everyone. Today, we're chatting with Eva Gunishka, co-founder of Humans in the Loop. Humans in the Loop is a social enterprise that provides ethical human in the loop workforce solutions to power the AI industry. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know how all those companies that advertise their products as artificial intelligence? Well, many of those AI products are not entirely AI driven. Some of them have real people working in the background to answer or do things machines are not yet capable of doing. If you're interested in AI and want to know how we can use a more human-centric approach so that AI doesn't displace us, then this is the episode for you. Let's dive in. So let's get started. Zdrave, zdrave Eva, Iglis Das, Iglis Das Krakt Hotno, Oh, wow. Good job. This was really, really impressive. <laughs> I've been practicing. <laughs> you know, right. the Bulgarian language. <laughs> yeah, it, the Bulgarian language is a, it's, it's very different in terms of the characters. Like, is there another language that it's pretty close to here in Europe somewhere? Oh, yeah, absolutely. A lot of the Slavic languages also use a similar alphabet, some of them, like Serbian, for example, and Russian. But yeah, a, a lot of them, even if they use a Latin alphabet, they're quite similar as well. All, okay. A lot of languages in Eastern Europe. Okay. So that's it, because I have yet to inter interview a guest that came from a Slavic, you know, language background. So this is the first time. So when I yeah. saw the uh, translation, I, I, I was too tempted to not try and say, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you? <laughs> okay. So let's get started, Eva. I recently read that Google has fired an engineer over breaching its confidentiality agreement after he made a claim that the tech giant's conversation, artificial intelligence is sentient because it has feelings, emotions, and subjective experiences. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that was a big scandal. And I think a lot of people were left with the impression that the person was fired because of this claim, but yeah, it was mostly because of the, you know, disclosing internal information. I think it's quite interesting because we as humans, when we interact with artificial intelligence, we tend to ascribe human characteristics to it that we like, for example, especially uh, and, and companies do take advantage of that. You know, when, when companies create robots, they tend to make them even like very cute or, you know, very human-like. A lot of them have like sensual female voices and so on. So they do try to transmit this kind of like hum humanity in terms of, you know, the, the systems that they have, but they're just uh, statistical systems of, you know, what is a person, let's say, most likely to say in terms of uh, a chatbot that you're developing. So, of course, because it's based on their responses and the, the iterations and the utterances of so many people, in the end, it does end up sounding like an actual person, but it's just an amalgam of all of the different utterances that you've trained the system on. So, in a sense, it isn't like an actual person, but it's just a, a copy or, yeah, a combination of all the thousands of people who have contributed to the system. God, it's it's becoming so real-like. You know, every year I feel like AI is becoming so much entrenched in, in our lives. What are some misconceptions and stereotypes that people have around AI that you come across? Well, I think that usually... When you talk about AI, people tend to imagine like the Terminator or like robots and a lot of what, what is known as 
general artificial intelligence. So let's say an artificial intelligence that can actually do a lot of things and may even be able to create more, let's say, systems of it, systems of it on its own. So that's kind of, you know, the point where we would lose control over the artificial intelligence. And, you know, this is something that a lot of people are speculating about and, and writing about, but we're far away from that. I would say right now, you know, you're, you're lucky if your, let's say, computer vision system is able to distinguish well between different types of pizzas. For example, if you're trying to, you know, have like a pizza detector or different types of shoes, if you want to, if you want to train like a shoe detector or a brand detector or something. Yeah. Just because, you know, very frequently the actual applications of AI are quite, you know, practical and, and they're not that ambitious, let's say, and they're just related to things that we're trying to automate or make easier for users or just do at a very, very large scale, which is something that we we couldn't do previously, especially if some type of human labor or human judgment was involved. Okay. Now, researching, getting prepared for this interview and researching you and your work, I came across two works, two words that I was unfamiliar with. The first one was foxomation, and the second one was ghost work. And I, I think they're roughly the same thing, right? Can you describe what Foxomation is and then also share what an example that a company has been guilty of when, when doing this? Yeah, sure. So this is quite relevant to the work that we do, which is preparing the data sets that are used to train AI systems. And this, this term comes from, and let's say a, a pretense of a company that it's automating some service but there are actually humans behind the system performing a lot of the work. So let's say, you know, I'm a company that tries to do a pizza detector and I'm trying to commercialize it and have offer users a, a very nice app so that they can, I don't know, like find a pizza that they like and, and immediately find out their its ingredients and it's in the recipe. So maybe if my system is not good enough, I'm actually going to have human operators in the back. We immediately have to be like, pizza experts and they have to send their, their responsible pizza in. Yeah. So even though I'm selling something to users, which is like, oh, you know, I have the super advanced pizza detector and it's like really, you know, top notch, latest technology, it's actually not fully automated. And that's why it's called automation. And then ghost work is definitely a, a related to this. It basically refers to the fact that the people who are in the back end, they're usually hidden and they become ghosts basically because nobody talks about them. Yeah. The companies try to hide the fact that they're using them because, you know, otherwise they will lose all of their appeal of like high tech systems. If, you know, it's revealed that they actually use humans. Yeah. So this is why a lot of humans that are working in the back end are also suffering from like difficult conditions of work and low wages. And there isn't a lot of visibility on their role. And, it's usually not appreciated enough and so on. So that's why now, you know, there, there's a lot of research on this type of work and th that's why it's called the ghost work. Yeah. And I, I, I was reading somewhere that there was on a university, a robot that was on campus and people thought that it was just a very smart robot, but it turned out that there was actually ghost workers in Colombia that were being paid very little to actually control the robot. And there was a backlash, sort of a backlash against the company because they were trying to, to hide that, right? And that's what I didn't know that I found so fascinating is that now when I see the, all these advertisements about, you know, this has AI, this has AI, now in the back of my head, I'm wondering, 
maybe that's not entirely true. There's going to be some people that are behind the scenes doing a part of the job that can't be done by the robot or the AI itself. And, and so where does, you know, where does your work come in? How are you involved in, in this, this whole you know, life cycle of AI, how we're trying to, corporations are trying to add more AI into their electronics or their robots or their products? What, what are, where are you involved in this? Yeah. So I would say, you know, my point of view and, and what I'm trying to promote is that it's not shameful to be using humans behind AI systems. You know, it's not something that you should be ashamed of or try to hide. It's actually a best practice because these are the people who are helping your robot, let's say, navigate through, you know, the streets of, you know, or, you know, on campus and right. are enabling it to actually perform very complicated tasks and to take decisions whenever it's not sure where to go or whether it can cross this type of like, I don't know, grassland or whatever it is. So the the real world or the human world is quite messy and a lot of unexpected things can happen. And if you don't have a human to actually guide you in certain decision-making points, you know, your AI is, is just not going to work. It's not going to know what to do. Let's say if there is I don't know, a celebration on campus and suddenly, you know, everything, you know, the, the streets are busy and your robot doesn't know what to do and so on. Then if a, if a human operator can take the lead and actually guide it, that data can also be used afterwards to train the AI system so that it becomes better and better with this additional human input. So what we are trying to do is to provide this human input so that AI systems have someone to rely on or... You know, if, if there is some kind of alert, there can be a robot or there can be a human operator to help the robot so that the systems can become better with time. Because right now, what is usually done is yeah, companies take a bunch of training data, let's say images of campus streets, they train the robot and then they deploy it. But there isn't much of like retraining happening in a standardized way. So what we're trying to do is convince companies, hey, it's a good idea to keep using humans so they can keep helping your robot. Maybe it's going to start learning and it's going to become better and better, but it's still good to have a human somewhere there being available for the system so that, you know, it can keep improving over time and it can also know what to do in weird situations. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share a story of a person that you've helped and either either get them a job or immerse them with the company to assist them with their AI and, and, and their robots? Yeah, sure. So our entire model is based on providing work to underrepresented and underprivileged groups. So we're training people to become humans in the loop or, you know, this type of human operators, even if they don't have a lot of skills, even if they don't speak very good English, you know, it's, it's quite an easy job usually just to mark pizzas based on their ingredients or to help, you know, navigate, okay, where is the street? Where is the sidewalk? And so on. And then someone, anyone can do. So we're in, in this, we're really seeing a, a great opportunity. And, you know, I'm very proud, for example, there is one girl that we're working with here in Bulgaria. And, you know, she was actually asking a lot of questions like, what's going to happen with this AI system, you know, as I'm working with it, is it going to learn? Is it going to need me in the future? Maybe it's going to learn so well, you know, all of the things that I'm showing to it that it's not going to need me in the future and I'm going to lose my job. So, you know, I, I was really impressed by, you know, our workers, even though many of them come from underprivileged backgrounds and may not 
know a lot about technology or AI and so on. You know, we're trying to raise a lot of awareness among them about, you know, the importance of their role and, and how important, you know, all of the work that they do is, even if it's just like marking pieces, you know, it's actually quite important. So the fact that she was asking me about all these things for me, it was very impressive because I felt like she was really, you know, understanding the field and, and thinking critically about her own role and the future of the work that she's doing. How are you recruiting such people? So we usually partner with NGOs in the different countries where we operate. We work a lot in the Middle East. So for example, beyond Bulgaria, where we're based and where we, where we have a small workforce, we work in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Lebanon, in Yemen. So these are, you know, a lot of Middle Eastern countries that have faced a lot of challenges in recent years. There is a lack of economic opportunities. There's a big crisis right now happening in Lebanon. The change of government in Afghanistan, you know, the economic crisis as well in, in Syria and, and especially in the north where we're working. So it's, you know, quite a difficult situations. And now we're actually starting to work beyond these countries and we're doing some pilots in Ukraine in order to help people who've been affected by the current war and in the Democratic Republic of Congo as well to provide new opportunities to youth who the only, you know, opportunity for them is to work in mining. So we're really trying to support people in a lot of these different countries, but we always do that through local organizations that can help us understand the local ecosystem and the local situation and navigate it and help people in the best possible way. Okay. Since launching Humans in the Loop, what's one of the hardest or one of the toughest obstacles that you've had to overcome? Eva. I would say back in 2019, when we were working with people full time, we had a small team of human operators or annotators, as we call them. And then once their one year contract was over, all of them wanted to drop out except for one person. So that was that was a very heartbreaking moment for me because I was like, okay, what am I doing this for? Is this worth it at all? Do people even like this type of job? Because it's it's, you know, a lot of menial work and can become very boring. And we also didn't have a lot of money so that we could pay good salaries for our people. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is not such a good idea. If people don't enjoy this, why do it? So that was that was the only moment when I've actually reconsidered my decision of was this even, you know, the right thing to do? Maybe I should shift to something else or pivot. But what happened was that we still had our clients, so they still needed someone to do their work. And... We were working with a lot of people who weren't full-time, but we're just freelancers. So they were still happy to do the work. And they were like, yeah, you know, if I'm working as a freelancer, I can manage my own time. I can work on evenings or on weekends. I don't have to be coming to the office and working full-time. So that was before the pandemic. But even, you know, before the pandemic, we decided, okay, let's shift to a fully remote and freelance type of work so that all of our people can enjoy this type of freedom and flexibility. So yeah, this is how it went. And in the end, this has been the model that we've been following ever since. So happy end, you know, the yeah. the, the whole story developed in a positive way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this was one of the most difficult moments for me. Yeah, I can imagine because you think that you're giving somebody, you know, employment, an opportunity, you know, a, a sense of, of just being able to contribute to something and then you find out, I don't like this anymore. <laughs> and you're like, where did I go wrong? Okay. Well, that's cool that you were able to pivot and find a solution for that. Now, what's, what do you feel like you've done really well since you've launched Humans in the Loop? I think 
one of my strengths is partnership building. So, you know, all of the NGOs on the ground that we're partnering with, I weave the foundations for that and kind of the model that we're following. So now my team, whenever we decide to expand to a new location, they have kind of a roadmap and, you know, this is kind of a good model that we're following. And the same thing with also some technical partners that we have from the ecosystem. So we're trying to really collaborate and serve clients together with them instead of competing. And this is just a model that I really like, you know, to find synergies between you yourself and other people in the same industry instead of competing with them. Yeah, I think it, it has definitely helped us a lot, especially, you know, for scaling to other countries and supporting, you know, for example, for NGO partners, we, we've done a lot of work to support them in terms of capacity building and also provide commissions to them for every project that they help us deliver. So that has helped them financially as well. So I think it has definitely been a win-win situation. And I, I really like it when, when it happens like this. Yeah. No, I'm like you. I love partnerships, whether it's just connecting individuals who I think would be interested in learning more about each other and finding synergies or whether it's its companies it's itself. So I'm with you on that. What are you reading lately that has blown your mind or changed your perspective around AI? If, if, if there's a piece of media. Yeah, so I recently read The Atlas of AI as I was preparing for one of my talks. And it's by this researcher, I think she's based in the US, Kate Crawford. And she's amazing. She's like my favorite researcher in the field of AI because she doesn't only talk about technology. In fact, she doesn't talk about technology at all, almost. She mainly talks about society and you know, she takes kind of this anthropological approach where she really explores the impact of AI on different, you know, communities in terms of how AI is produced, you know, the people who are behind this, for example, this human element, but also where is the hardware for it assembled and where all of the elements and minerals are required for these systems extracted from, you know, what is the impact of AI on, you know, particular industries and so on. So that, that really blew my mind because I really appreciated her wide overview of, of the impact of artificial intelligence systems on our lives up to, you know, the, the, the debris that we're, that, that we're putting into space. So for me, you know, the fact that the book was called Atlas of AI was really illustrative of the fact the the whole approach that she took uh, in order to explore the role of AI. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now this is kind of a, a question that I didn't think to ask you, but but since you were talking about her and the impact that it has, I'm reluctant to get an Amazon Echo or any other sort of electronic in my house that's like a smart electronic. I, I just don't want, for me personally, I just don't want my kids thinking it's so easy to find an answer to a question by saying, you know, um, Alexa, can you tell me whatever, right? I want them to put a little bit of effort in, even though going to Google is really not that much effort compared to when I was a kid, right? <laughs> do yeah. you personally, do you personally have any like AI electronics in your house? How do you feel about that? I mean, are you, is it immersed in your world? Not at all. I think it's also because here in Bulgaria, people don't usually buy that. You know, it's not that easily accessible and uh, maybe, you know, Amazon doesn't have such a uh, deep penetration in the Bulgarian market yet, but also as a personal choice, I don't feel like I need gadgets like that because Usually they're connected to like smart home applications and so on. My husband is a big geek. So I would say that, 
you know, if he could, he would do a lot of like the Modics applications and like automation and sort of like lighting and, you know, door opening or window opening yeah. or whatever it is. But I'm not, I'm not such a big fan also because I agree that, you know, firstly, it's, it's the privacy of your life and your data, because even though, you know, there are a lot of restrictions and measures around what Alexa or Siri and so on can hear, they're always on because they're waiting for you to say, you know, to call them. So there are, there is a lot of data that is still going through you towards the AI system. And of course, there are humans behind it processing a lot of your data and working to improve the AI. So, you know, this the shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. But yeah, also the fact that, you know, a lot of things that you share in the privacy of your phone may be used afterwards in order to provide you with recommendations of what you should buy and so on. Which, of course, I mean, we're already seeing, even if my phone is next to me and I start talking about pizza, maybe next time I open my you know, my browser and Smith. So it's kind of all around. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of also my my attempt to the penetration of air systems in my personal life. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Now for some fun questions so the audience can kind of get to know your personality. Okay. First question for you is what is the best advice that your mom or dad ever gave you? Oh, well, I think it's this quote that I found on the back of like this photo at home, which was like a message from my dad. And he had written on it that quality people sooner or later succeed. And for me, that was, you know, such a discovery when I found it written behind that, that photo. And, and it was, was a, a really, you know, a moment of, of me feeling very, very, very connected with him. And, you know, the fact that she, he took the time and, you know, hit that message behind this photo without, you know, knowing whether I would ever find, find it. So that was very nice. Nice, nice, nice. Second question for you. Does corn belong on pizza? I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of weird pizzas. I like Hawaiian pizza with pineapple on it. I like different, you know, weird types of pizzas. So yeah, yeah, I really like corn on pizza. Okay. All right. Last question for you. What is a favorite TV show that you can watch again and again? I think Friends, just because it's, you know, such a, such a classic. And whenever, you know, I want to just watch something fun, I just play it, even though I already know all the, the lines and I know what they're going to, what, what people are going to say in each episode, but it's, it's still like so much fun to watch. All right. That's my wife's favorite show too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Eva, thank you so much for being on Innovators Can Laugh. Everybody who's listening, this is Eva from Humans in the Loop. If you enjoy this, feel free to tell others about it. Feel, feel free to, to give us a review. Eva, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a review and star rating. Also, don't forget to sign up for the ICO newsletter at innovatorscanlaugh.com where you can get the bio and details of each guest. Thanks.